another great episode of my dad's podcast, Daddy Unscripted. My daddy is paying me under the table to let you all know what's in store. If you don't want anyone to overhear words like canoe and mother. We strongly suggest you use headphones for this episode. Now that you helped me earn a special treat from my dad, here he is with your treat, another podcast episode. Benvinguts, which is welcome in Catalan, which is a Romance language spoken mainly in Spain, Andorra, and France. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the podcast creator and your host of these episodes with other dads. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't be too thrown off by my sharing the Catalan with you. Uh, that is a normal thing in this podcast. And though I'm sure none of you probably speak that language, it's kind of a harsh assumption of mine, but I'm guessing nobody does. But I may help you out because now if you run into anybody who does speak that, you at least know how to say welcome to them. So you are welcome for that. I'm joined by another fantastic dad, fantastic guest today. I'm not just saying that. This is not me smelling smelling smoke out of your butt. I don't know why I was going to say that, but I apparently have something going on that I need to seek some help on pretty soon. But there it is again, more butts. My guest today is Adam Scheinberg, who some of you may know that name and some of you may not. Don't worry, you're going to know it after this episode for sure. Adam is the president of the Mockingbird Foundation. He is also the person responsible for all things Umphreys.com. He helped kind of rebuild and make Fish.net what it is today and so many other things. You'll hear all these stories straight from Adam as we talk. But before I go on to that, let me remind you that Daddy Unscripted is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to have somebody tell you that right now. Osiris. Hey, this is Brendan from Umphreys McGee. This podcast is part of the Osiris Podcast family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts, connecting music fans with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Osiris. Okay, and that part of the podcast is now behind us. Make sure that you check out OsirisPod.com after this episode, though, or maybe while you're listening, you can multitask, but you're not going to want to miss anything of this conversation with Adam. So let's get right to that. My conversation with Adam Scheinberg. All right, we are here today with Adam Scheinberg. Adam is very involved with multiple different things that a a lot of you will be very familiar with, being the fish.net, allthingsumphreys.com, the Mockingbird Foundation, to name a few of them. He is also father of two, yes? Yes, two. Much like me, a boy and a girl, and some people back in the day used to seek out the perfect family unit of four where you have a boy and a girl. I don't know if that's still a thing or... 
I was aiming for one of each flavor and in there the order go. that I got them. So um, oh, I'm nice. calling it a win. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you. First of all, thank you very much for being a part of this and for being very open once we reached out. I think it was just kind of led to you through, who was it that brought me to you? Brando. Brando from Cash or Trade. Brando, that's right. So a great recommendation. So we'll throw a shout out to Brando for that. Thank you, Brando. Yes, thank you. Are you and Brando good friends or? Oddly enough, uh, we're going to talk about a, a number of things I've been involved with. But in the early days of Cash or Trade, I actually helped write some of the initial framework and gave Brando a bunch of feedback on early code and design. So um, they've done a fantastic job really getting the word out. And I'm not really involved in it, but I'd like to think that if you had access to the server, you'd still see some of my initial <laughs> stuff underneath layers of new. So nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So if you go Mr. Robot on Cash or Trade, you'll find your little Scheinberg nuggets in there. That's right. That's, what you're That's right. <laughs> Don't do that, though. Anyway. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. Let's uh, dig in and we'll, we've, I know we'll have a bunch to cover with all of the stuff that you do. So we'll get into the uh, dad portion. And I haven't really talked to you much in the pre-interview phase about this. But if you want to, if it makes sense to go back beyond just your dad, but uh, let's hear a little bit about that paternal side of your life. Yeah, sure. I am originally from Connecticut. My family um, is, traces its roots through New York. So my uh, father was born in the Bronx and my grandfather lived in New York um, till the mid probably 90s when he moved down here to Florida where I am now, mm. but not, not to where I am. I was uh, very close with my maternal grandparents, but my paternal grandparents were obviously in the city. So I saw them several times a year and I was pretty close with my grandfather. He lived to be 98 and oh, wow. uh, yeah, just died maybe two years ago. Honestly, he, he was awesome. And there's great stories that could probably fill a podcast by itself about him. But I, like I said, grew up in Connecticut and I was very close with my father and continued to be till this day. And he is still in Connecticut. And now I have crawled all the way down the Atlantic to Orlando. So I'm going to yeah. stop you because since you said you can actually fill a podcast with some stories about your grandfather, do you have any like top two, top three stories that are good enough to be on here and included, even though it won't be entirely about him? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll do kind of the 50,000 foot view. There uh, you my go. grandfather is also from New York going way back. He joined the army when he was pretty young, like many in that generation. Uh, he was born in 1918. So uh, he was worked his way up in World War II to be a captain and uh, ended up getting injured in, I think, New Guinea. Something with his eye. I'm not exactly sure the entire story, but um, he was offered a Purple Heart and uh, declined because at the time... The Purple Heart also included a letter to your family, and that was an indication that you had been injured in some form or fashion. And since he was not in regular contact with them, he did not want his parents to just get a letter that he had been injured. Oh, um, wow. 
So worked for a while, retired uh, from the army just before he became a major, moved back to the U.S. and met my grandmother. Um, and he was married to her until she died in the mid eighties. Uh, mm-hmm. He was a salesman, and he was pretty successful in a way that I think is perhaps naively unique to that generation, in that he didn't have a ton of formal education, but damn, he was convincing and he could sell people and he just got people to warm up to him very quickly. So he had a whole career, retired, decided he needed something to do after my grandmother died and started working for UPS up until the point that he was working in the corporate office for the the top executives of UPS, Mm -hmm. Uh, retired and moved to Florida and spent some time working with his son, his, his, my uncle, and then volunteered at the Boca Raton uh, Fire Department and 911, where he put in more hours than any volunteer ever in history and exceeded it by something like 8,000 hours. Wow. So, yeah, he was at like, geez, I want to say over 15,000 hours. Wow. They were fantastic with him, absolutely fantastic. And he ended up winning a national award for emergency operations and they established a scholarship in his name uh, because of his just unending volunteer work. So he was a pretty amazing guy who left a huge hole when he left for a lot of people. Yeah. Wow. Clearly a man of dedication and servitude. That's crazy. Yeah. So he was a good guy and uh, certainly a personality that uh, I don't, I don't think can be replicated in modern day. But um, maybe that's just because I'm living in modern day and I just can't imagine it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So then, so your dad, you said he had a brother. Was was it just the two of them or were there more siblings? Just the two of them. Um, my uncle lived in New York for a long time and moved to Florida pretty early, married and had his kids down here. So they've been distant uh, at least geographically, for uh, pretty much my entire life. Mm. Um, my father has been living in Connecticut for, geez, who knows? It's got to be 50 years plus now. And he is an attorney. And for most of my life, I assumed that I would just become an attorney and probably follow in his footsteps and perhaps take over his practice. Mm. Uh, when I was in college, I was effectively pre-law and took the LSATs and prepped everything. And literally the day that I was set to send my applications for law school, I had that moment of what the hell am I doing? I really, (laughs) I'm really not passionate about this. And it wasn't that being a lawyer was problematic for me. It was more like the process of going through law school and having to study for the bar just Mm -hmm. didn't, didn't seem like the path I wanted to take. So I just kind of tossed them. And that was that. Uh, Wow. Thus ended the entire (laughs) uh, path that I had been following since I was like eight. Yeah. And how was your dad about that? Uh, Oddly enough, I think he was pretty calm. I I, I feel like Mm -hmm. he was very supportive of everything that I decided for most of my life. He's always been uh, really just... He's always been supportive of every move that I've made. He's given me some some uh, bats with the reality stick 
periodically. But um, <laughs> there was never a moment where he said, I thought you wanted to do this. I thought you were going to you know, take over my practice. Right. Perhaps, perhaps privately he's thought that, but I never felt any guilt about any of it. Yeah. And it was definitely the right choice. Well, yeah, it sounds, I mean, from everything that you have done, it sounds like unless there's some cases that you were going to do some magical work on that supersede all the work that you've done that we'll never know about in that parallel universe of your life. But uh, yeah, it sounds like you made the right choice. Uh, There are certainly some very good attorneys out there, many of whom I'm uh, friends with and respect, but the law is saturated in the United States. And I cannot imagine that I would have been a uh, quality contributor <laughs> to, uh, to that profession. So much less all the uh, years of looking back at that same transition fork in the road moment of you not sending them in and wondering about this life. Right. So yeah. there's actually a pretty good uh, segue here. So um, as I'm approaching the end of my college career, and I am now mostly directionless, it freed up my schedule to uh, follow fish to Europe. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, those, those impressionable months, I think, have had a huge effect on where the rest of my life has led. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, would you like me to Are you talking 97? Uh, this would be, yeah, 97, 98. So I graduated okay. in 98, but by that point it was probably late 97 that this all started to gel. That's awesome that that is the, um, different fork that took place that kind of really solidified your path to yeah. where you are. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't really know what was going to happen after I graduated at that point, because when grad school was no longer of any form was no longer in the equation, the future was wide open. Mm. So I applied for some sort of dry goods, uh, internship. So dry goods being the, uh, the fish merchandising uh, piece and did not get it. So I said, all right, well, I'll just pick up and travel for a bit. And by the way, fish is going to Europe and that lets me go to a couple of countries I've never been to. And uh, so I did. Finished college, hopped on a plane, and flew to Copenhagen. Wow. So are you doing this solo? Uh, completely and totally solo. Amazing. Yeah. I really was looking forward to kind of a an adventure that had no direction. So I bought my ticket to Europe. I bought my ticket home, and I had nothing in between, no way to get from one place to another. That was a short tour for the band and for me, but it was still <laughs> it was still really meaningful. And I made yeah. a bunch of uh, friends and had some really good experiences and saw some awesome concerts. I'm sure. So did you do the entire summer leg of their tour with them or did you, were you just kind of hitting one after here and there? Yeah, so there were a couple of shows in Copenhagen, uh, three three awesome shows in 1998. Fish was already pretty popular, and they were filling up nice-sized venues. And going to Copenhagen and seeing them in a place that held under a thousand people, and then right. walk, walking outside and getting in line to buy, you know, whatever falafel they had outside, and literally standing behind tray 
was a, a really surreal experience. But the part sure. the part that's so interesting is that you know none of us were really cool about it, but we all had to play cool, and so everybody mm-hmm. kept a respectable distance from the band. And as a result, the band was really uh, just kind of amongst us, and mm-hmm. that was really uh, an awesome experience. And and one of those shows remains in my top two or three mm-hmm. from Copenhagen. Some of us went to Sweden and then we took a train through Germany to get to Prague. Prague is, uh, there's kind of a legendary show that happened there, but it was very different when we were actually there and we didn't have the, the hindsight of 15, 20, 30 years of, of fish music to, to be able to uh, judge it appropriately. Yeah. And Prague was amazing because the dollar was really strong. So a bunch of us, you know, young people showed up and we went out to restaurants and had these immense, just massive feasts with wine and, you know, pizza and risotto and and chicken and all, all sorts of stuff. And it would cost us like six bucks. Right. So we loved that. And then we, f- we flew to Barcelona and uh, did a couple shows in Barcelona, which was awesome as well. So mm. really, really good time. Yeah. I lived in, England for a while in 94 and 95 and took a month long, about a month to a month and a half trip gallivanting through Europe. And I can only imagine doing that surrounding something that I was in love with as much as fish and tacking that on to such a phenomenal experience of culture and people and places and uh, i that would be just the most mind-blowing experience so i'm sure you were in heaven so uh, you know i, I don't want to get too kind of e- existential about this whole thing but uh the experience in my memory changes over time and mm-hmm. what i really remember is not only the concerts but really kind of the side trips and the people who I met along the way and how there were these people who I met and I have barely any memory of, but somehow I decided, yeah, we should jump on a train. Like the five of us should jump on a train and travel three countries, 16 hours together. And we did, and it was great. And I'm, I'm going to do a full wraparound later when we're talking about other stuff. But I met yeah. some people who I lost touch with, who I later reconnected with. Mm. So, um, yeah, there was, there, there was a lot that happened on that trip in a short period that, that certainly shaped what came after it. And Prague, I actually, Prague was one of the places we ended up going to. And I mean, this is the time when, you know, they're actually running, I think it was Levi's was running commercials, uh, where some Americans would bring Levi's to Prague. I think this is the way it went. I, I don't know if they were Americans, but they would trade in Levi's and get a car for it oh, wow. because, because the dollar was like so crazy there. And I'm sure were you, were you there? Was it still what communist rule or I don't remember it being communist rule. And I sure as hell don't remember jeans being worth as much of a car, <laughs> a car. <laughs> I, it might've been, it might've been a little bit exaggerated, but uh, yeah, I remember, I mean, we went to, there was one place there in Prague that was called, I think it was actually called American sports bar. And it was this guy from Texas who had moved out there and developed this sports bar restaurant and 
it was the only place at that time, it may be different now, but it was the only place in all of Europe where you could get free refills on coffee like you would here. And I mean, we would stay there for hours just eating and having a bunch of coffee. And I remember the waitresses would look at us when we asked for a refill on coffee and kind of scowl at us like we were uh, taking advantage or almost like we were stealing from them because it was just so foreign to them still. We drank absinthe when we were there. And oh, nice. I, I don't remember much of it. I, I just remember <laughs> that it was a big deal. And everybody said, you got to do it when you're in Prague. Yeah. So no coffee for us. Yeah. We, we missed the uh, free absinthe refill <laughs> menu. I don't know that you need many <laughs> refills of absinthe. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so post 98, I came back and I worked in Washington, D.C. So I went to school in Virginia at James Madison University. And uh, most people from uh, my group of, of friends eventually made their way to D.C. after graduation. So uh, bounced around in D.C. for a couple of years. And eventually, I guess as a habit, I sort of picked up web programming. I ended up getting into computers via the fact that I realized I knew just innately more about computers than some of the guys supporting the network at some of the miscellaneous jobs I had, uh, got some additional education and eventually started writing web pages. So there had been, uh, I had a long history with fish.net at that point. It was my main resource of fish set lists along with Andy Gadiel's page. So if you're a fish fan, obviously those two have, uh, a lot of history. And mm -hmm. there was so much on fish.net that had kept me occupied for so long. And as I learned more about writing code, one of the things that really bugged me was just how bad the code that made the random set list page on fish.net was. <laughs> so I emailed this, this guy, Ellis Goddard, who was, you know, this name who I had seen for years. And I asked him if he would let me rewrite the code. And he said, yes. And that was my first contribution to uh, a fish website. And that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. And then I chimed in on a couple of the FAQ answers and yeah, that, that was, that was more or less it for a little while. There's a little bit of dot, mm -hmm. dot, dot in there. Right, right, right. Um, I moved to Florida. There's plenty of big things that happened in my life, but eventually I found myself really kind of pining for fish while they were broken up. And this old fishnet site was fallen. It had fallen into disrepair and nobody was maintaining it. And I reached back out to Ellis and I said, would you mind if I took a stab at rewriting the FAQ? It really needs to be better. Mm -hmm. And he said, you can rewrite the whole site for all I care. And <laughs> so I decided to rewrite the FAQ. And it was, it was a lot of fun and it was just horrible. But at the time it was better than anything else that existed on a static website. And mm -hmm. to pass the time, I just started playing with the idea of what if I did rewrite the entire site? It was not as big of a project as it sounds like, because the band was broken up. So the amount of content on the website was pretty static. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, I knew everything that was there. So... I started doing this and I started to get some momentum and 
then kind of out of the blue, uh, Fish announced that they were <laughs> reuniting and playing in uh, in Hampton in March of 2009. And uh, suddenly, Fish.net was relevant again. And mm-hmm. there was a gap um, between the point that I said, I'd like to kind of take a stab at it. And they said, sure, go ahead. And then them saying, how long until the rest of the site is done? Because we need to fire back up and uh, be ready. Mm-hmm. So I did. I wrote the entire thing. And once I got into the swing of it, I thought, you know, it would be really fun if we had a like a discussion forum. There, There is another discussion forum for fish fans online, many of them, but there's one really popular one. And it moves very quickly. And I think we could uh, build something that works differently and serves a different part of the community. So I did. I built it all. We rolled it out in 2009. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was instantly uh, very popular. I'm sure. And plenty of people having lots to talk about right then, too. Lots to talk about. And it it very quickly went from talking about fish to a real kind of social experience. Um, Mm -hmm. Heavily moderated at first. And I played a big role in the beginning of really defining the lines of what was going to be okay and what wasn't. uh, Building moderation tools around that kind of thing. And, And then I guess it just kind of got bigger than me and we ended up having to expand our team and then we really went all in on the set lists it wasn't it was no longer look at a set list it was now click on a song see every time it was played click on a venue see when it was played and Mm -hmm. that led into let's analyze statistics and let's create accounts and let people track their shows and run their own statistics and yeah there were a, a million permutations of what could be done so that was an awesome experience to write it and be able to very quickly roll out new features and have so many, I mean, just thousands of people who were uh, touching the things that I did on a regular basis. Uh, it wasn't long before there were marriages and divorces and babies that stemmed off of that. And it was kind of common for a few years for people to email me and say, uh, thank you because I met my wife on the board that you built or mm-hmm. this is our baby. And, you know, she was born from a relationship that formed on this, this discussion board. So pretty, pretty rewarding. That's so cool. Yeah. Also, it was unquestionably, I think the uh, gold standard for fish set lists at the time, while they existed elsewhere, nobody put in the amount of uh, effort and research as the team at fish.net who argued mercilessly over every tease and what constituted a good jam and whether or not something counted (laughs) as a reprise or not. So really, really a lot of fun to be part of that team. Yeah. Kind of the, uh, a a very current hot button topic with what was it from? Oh, party time. Oh yes. From New Year's, New Year's run. (laughs) Oh my God. So I'll go on record on this podcast as not having a strong opinion because I have friends on both sides of the issue and I'd like to keep that way. (laughs) Keep it that way. Uh, that was a uh, firestorm. (laughs) So stop me if I'm, if I'm kind of fire hosing this too much. I had a friend who was involved in the fish and advisory group who I got to know increasingly. And he sent me an email and said, I'd like to introduce you to somebody who works for the band on freeze McGee. And they have this event coming up and they need a little website for it. And uh, I had heard on freeze McGee, but I wasn't 
I, I just, I had never really gotten into their stuff. So mm-hmm. they did, they hired me to, to build this little website and it was pretty small and not a big deal. And I moved on, but uh, a few months later, he made re remade the introduction and said, I think you'd really like the band. And also I think there could be an opportunity for you to do more with them. So I started listening to them and man, the bar is high, but once you're over that wall, it is just a, an, an endlessly deep well. So I found my second love and mm-hmm. uh, got really into listening to them and then ultimately working with them. It worked in the perfect order because had I been a big fan when I started uh, working with them, perhaps I would have had a little bit of like stars in my eyes kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I went to, I don't know, my second or third Umphreys show, I was hanging out backstage with the band and, and I really, I didn't know them. I didn't know even really probably who was in the band. And that was such a great experience to not appreciate <laughs> um, mm-hmm. as odd as that sounds uh, and to kind of work my way into their catalog and um, be able to be so objective. So yeah, somehow very quickly it went from maybe we could work together to um, I built their set list site and corrected a bunch of things that I wished I had designed differently on fish.net um, and, mm-hmm. and then took over and said, it's time for us to rebuild the main website. And then I wrote Umbowl websites. They have this big event or they did for several years uh, where fans would kind of vote on what should happen. And we've done maybe two dozen uh, websites where fans bought tickets and then got to uh, vote or provide input in some fashion. Uh, we've allowed fans to vote on their Hall of Fame albums every year where we, we mm-hmm. uh, take the best jams of the year and merge them into a, a, a quote-unquote show. So yeah, they they are a band that's not afraid of taking technical risks. And I have been lucky enough to uh, be able to design some of that and even just play kind of an advisory role in some of the other stuff. So it's been a very different experience to work with Humphreys McGee and really have that kind of tie to the inner circle than it has to work on fish.net. So on one side, we are what I would consider the premier fan website and the rules are just what would be in good taste. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, I sometimes run statistics for the band on up for Humphreys and I've written tools specifically to help them write set lists and you know, they pay a very different level of attention to set lists and mm-hmm. have a different kind of approach to jamming and uh, tracking what they've played than fish. So really kind of opposite experiences, but both really interesting for me. Yeah. And Umphreys. So you said this very quickly. And for those of you who may not know about this with their Umble shows, it was basically a it sounds like it and it was kind of like a super bowl like a football game and there were four quarters or different sections they had they did have four right yeah four four quarters they were called quarters and the whole thing was structured like a football game there was an actual halftime the only difference is that there was an encore which i think they called overtime but yeah every umbo magically went to overtime (laughs) 
It's, it was like the uh, the conference championships of football this year. Yeah, but the difference is the Umbol refs were far kinder. <laughs> yes, yes. There there were no uh, botched calls that um, had Umphrey's fans suing uh, another team. This is true. For, for anything, yeah. But they would have four different quarters, and they were kind of differentiated where – one of them was an entire kind of jammy improv set and your choices were things like, and and I know what one, I, I, I'm not going to be able to say what all the different choices were, but like one was 70s porn music and they would have a jam in that style and they were seeing, the band was seeing it as they were, having to go into these different jam styles and oh this is what everybody voted for okay we're gonna go into this and figuring it out and it was i mean i don't i don't know of any other i'm sure there's little bands that have maybe done something like this but this is unheard of right so uh the humble shows to me are just an absolute just an amazing experience they're they're pretty long and exhausting for the band I hope I hope they don't mind me saying that, but um, there were there were very clear divisions between the quarters, um, and they changed order, and they actually changed what they did uh, year over year sometimes. But a typical umbol would have one quarter of choose your own adventure, where they would throw multiple songs up on a board, and you would text in your votes, and the band wouldn't know what was coming up until fifteen twenty seconds before the song was about to start. The quarter you're referring to was where fans would text in suggestions and Mm -hmm. um, the managers, which include Kevin Browning, who you've had as a guest on your show, would select uh, things that they felt were achievable but challenging. Mm -hmm. And the band would look up and they would see heavy metal bunny rabbit and have to figure out what that sounds like. And they would write that jam as they were uh, playing it. And, yeah. you know, some work better than others, but man, like 90% of the time they put something out that was pretty enjoyable. So, yeah. you know, those experiments are a blast to watch. And then of course you could vote ahead of time for things like random cover songs you wanted to hear. So you'd show up and you'd get Pearl Jam's Porch and Orion by Metallica and the Beatles, uh, part of the the blob off the back end of Abbey Road. So mean Mr. Mustard, mm-hmm. Polythene Pam, you know, all the way through the end, um, all in the same set. Tons, tons of fun. Very long. So long, in fact, that the band has to provide power strips so people can charge their phones in the middle of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so crazy. And and it's been a couple years since they've done it now. And I've started to see more people starting to clamor for them to bring it back, which will remain to be seen if they go back to that. But uh, I can imagine how not only physically, but mentally challenging that kind of a night is for them. I have absolutely no knowledge of whether or not they want to or will ever play another Rumble. But I would offer that one thing that is a driving force behind Humphreys McGee is not repeating themselves. And yeah. uh, I think there was a feeling that seven times through Humble that maybe it was starting to <laughs> feel, yeah, enough. like it wasn't quite as fresh as when they started. And yeah. um, I don't 
I don't like that there's a break or that it's never coming back, but I completely and totally understand it. And I, I'm excited to see what other kinds of things they develop to, to kind of scratch that itch. Yeah. They, I've always, uh, lauded them for their practices and their they're taking chances i mean things like that are just like i said unheard of but also incredibly risky not only in the moment but uh what they are doing as a band and things like headphones and snow cones giving headphones uh wireless headphones to fans to listen to the soundboard mix while they're at the concert is just that's just so cool it's nobody's doing that and they're i just love their think tank i love uh how involved they are with their fans and how much they pay attention and care about their involvement in everything too they're just their whole brand and company and product is just so refreshing and I think that that's always been at least like 30% of my enjoyment of them as a whole. So fun fact, the logo for headphones and snow cones is actually me. Oh, I was listening to headphones in Orlando. So 15 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. And there was a kind of uh, spacey jam in the middle of a song and Stasek, Ryan Stasek, who was also mm-hmm. a guest on this show, mm-hmm. uh, started playing America the Beautiful. And uh, their lighting director, Jefferson Waffle, put up Red, White, and Blue. And uh, one of the guys who works for Team Humphreys, Matt Heller, was standing right behind me. And he said, hey, uh, put your hands up. In the uh, There's kind of a, a hand gesture that Humphreys fans use. So I threw my hands up. He took a photo on his like iPhone 4 with the red, white, and blue in the background, and it was a great picture. I mean, it really was like perfect silhouette, and that photo was used all over the place. And then they also took it and uh, flattened out the image and turned it into the logo. So, uh, oh, yeah. That's awesome. So those guys are more dedicated to their craft than probably any musicians I really know uh, in that in that genre, certainly, many times I've been to concerts, and when I go backstage and hang out with people before the show, it is unlike uh, you would imagine. Um, Ryan is almost always uh, headphones plugged into his phone, playing mm-hmm. his bass for an hour or two before the show. Chris, the drummer, is absolutely warming up for a long time. The band plays a ton; they they do a ton of warm up with each other. They work on transitions. They work through uh, different things that they're going to do on stage. Those guys are consummate professionals, and it is an absolute joy to see them invest in much as much in the product they're going to put on in stage as what fans want to get from it. Mm-hmm. And and I totally uh, relate to what you're saying about being with them backstage. I've had the good fortune of shooting a bunch of shows and been back there in the quote unquote green room with them, uh, for a few of them. And I remember one, a handful of years ago where we were just sitting there talking about whatever. And somehow it led to us talking about Fletch and, uh, everybody was kind of laughing. And I think, you know, it was, it was one of those moments where you, 
thought about this movie that you hadn't thought about in a while. And then at some point later on during the show, they start, they throw in a uh, Fletch theme. And it was just like, I had the biggest smile on my face realizing and kind of knowing that they, why that had come up. It is such a beautiful thing that they have with each other and with the fans. And it's just so, it's so relaxed for them. They make it look so easy, but like you said, they put in so much to it. See all that complexity. And there was that inside joke that like seven people knew and six of them were on Mm -hmm. stage, you know? Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, So you are doing all of this for, fish you're doing all of this for umphreys where is uh your marriage taking place in this whole section of your life yeah yeah so um uh, i got married in 2006 um my wife jennifer is from new orleans and uh we have a lot in common and she is the perfect partner for me from a music standpoint i have strong opinions and i'm aggressively uh, interested in seeing concerts and she is flexible and open to mm-hmm. almost anything. So I drag her to all kinds of things and she's a good sport 99.9% of the time. Uh, <laughs> she does like fish. She does like Umphreys McGee. I've gotten her into uh, the band ghost recently. So a little heavier, mm-hmm. but I have uh, I've taken her to see like dream theater where uh, I can tell she's, wow less less excited than i am <laughs> in a yeah, room yeah. full of prog nerds and uh the only show i can remember that really was a bust i took her to see a band called mac sabbath who are oh boy you know mac sabbath at all no um, but it I, it sounds good mac sabbath is a black sabbath cover cover band but uh they all dress like characters from mcdonald's so, oh my gosh. Uh, you got Mayor McCheese <laughs> and Grimace awesome. and uh, Ronald McDonald, of course, and the Hamburglar. And every song's lyrics have been changed ever so slightly so that they're all about McDonald's foods. Wow. So I think this is absolute genius and comedy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at the highest level. And uh, three songs in, she said to me, I'm going to wait for you outside. And I, I said to her, but they're all, they've only played three songs. It's going to be like yeah. at least an hour and a half. She's like, I'll be outside. So I, I had this moment of, all right, I, I've seen the gimmick and she's hung in, she's hung in there for so many, 
so many concerts of bands that she didn't know or didn't care about. And uh, so I, I've only seen Max Sabbath play like four songs. But aside from that, uh, she is an, uh, just a real sport. And she, she'll do anything that, uh, that I ask her to, to come with me. So um, we have a great time together. Obviously, we have two kids. We started pretty quickly. I think both of us mm-hmm. were pretty excited about having kids. Mm-hmm. So married in 06. And uh, our daughter Jillian was born in October of 2007. Oh, wow. Yep. So we didn't have a ton of time as a married couple before we had kids, but I don't really feel a ton of regret about that. I think the timeline worked for us. Mm-hmm. So Jillian was a blast. Uh, we filmed the hell out of her and took a billion pictures. And when we decided to have baby number two, we did. So um, we were very lucky that that both of them were, once we decided, it was pretty immediate. So uh, yeah. Jack was born in 2010, in March, and uh, now we are a perfect little foursome. Are they 11 and 8, or? They are currently 11 and 8 for another 60 oh. days or so. But the 11 might as well be a 13 right now, because we're starting to see. Yeah. <laughs> we're starting to see those first peaks of uh, emotion and hormones and, oh, yeah. and uh, attitude. It's fantastic. So is she in is she in middle school then? <laughs> she is in fifth grade. She's starting middle okay. school next year. So I will tell you that as I've listened to several of the uh, previous Daddy Unscripted podcasts, I chuckle because, you know, wherever you are in life, there's somebody who's having an experience that is just a step behind you on the timeline, right? And Mm -hmm. nobody ever really knows better about your life than you. So I I don't want to imply anything other than simply what I'm saying. But having been through the the four-year-old phase and the the six-year-old phase and then hear people describe it, it's so funny because my summation is pretty much this. When you have a baby, it's the most amazing thing in the world. It is just captivating to watch everything this baby does. And by the time they're six months old, you think to yourself, oh man, they were boring the last six months, but I didn't know. Yeah. I just didn't know. And now they are amazing. And then they're like 18 months and they start making noise and crawling and interacting. And you're like, oh man, the last 18 months were pretty boring, but yeah. I didn't know. And then they're two and three and you keep thinking, I, I can't believe how awesome it is to have a kid who has like preferences and like wants certain foods. and everything before this was kind of boring, but thankfully I didn't know. And (laughs) now I have a kid who's 11 and she's her own challenge for herself. And she is, uh, you know, right up there as my best friend. And yeah, uh, I think to myself, man, everything before this was so easy. This (laughs) is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But thankfully I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So really every, every stage of parenting is just so perfect because it's exactly right for you when it's happening, you know? Right. Yeah. And something else is always next. So I have a buddy and we used to like hang out and just do guy things. We would go to movies together. We would do all these things. We were commenting recently about how we don't hang out as much anymore. And the reason is because uh, I would prefer to hang out with my son doing that stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. but he mm-hmm. says to me, I really want to see Glass, the movie Glass, which just came out. And yeah, I mean, I wanted to see glass, so why not 
why not take the kid? So, you know, it's great to have these two kids who you kind of shape to be exactly the people you want them to be. And thank God, as they grow up, you think, man, I love these people. These people are like tailor-made for me. Of course they are, but, you know, it's perfect. So Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy seeing all that. Are one of your kids more like you and one is more like your wife? Uh, Yes. Uh, My daughter really is like a carbon copy of my personality. And Mm -hmm. my son, much more like my wife. But my son and I have a lot of overlap in like things that we like to do. So um, we have distinctly different things that we do together than I would do with my daughter, which I suppose shouldn't, Mm -hmm. shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah. I think that you are the boys and yet there is that thing of daddy's girl. Yep, You got that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when you are uh, with your kids and whether it's fun parenting or disciplinary parenting or anything like that, do you see any of your dad in you and kind of have those little moments where a bell is ringing in your head and you're like, Oh my God, that was me when I was little or my dad when I was younger. That's a, that's a really good question. And, and the answer to that is not exactly, but, but the the answer to your question is a general yes. So Mm -hmm. I don't remember my father yelling at me much when I was a kid. Uh, My Mm -hmm. mother was the yeller. She was the disciplinarian. (laughs) And my father was not, but I was far more scared of my father than I was of my mother Mm -hmm. in the sense that like disappointing him would have crushed me. Right. You know, I don't really remember him ever laying a hand on me or anything like that. But, you know, if, if dad, if dad's voice was stern, that was, that, that was a reason to kind of check yourself. Mm -hmm. So I try, I try to kind of be that, but I think I am the primary disciplinarian with my kids. So I use it as, as the barometer of, uh, you know, what I'm trying to do. But yeah, the, the piece that I really try to emulate is from the time I was a little kid, both my parents really, but especially my father treated me with a a lot of respect. They really, they really considered my opinion and allowed me to uh, express myself and to, indicate what my preferences were. And they tried to respect those things. They indulged the things I was into. And so when my kids were small, I was like, well, my daughter likes Dora the Explorer. So I will know every friggin' Dora the Explorer song and episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's how it was my whole life. I, I watched a lot of Yo Gabba Gabba and I watched a lot of Dora the Explorer oh, yeah. and I listened to the music they like and I read <laughs> the books that they liked. And if they were into it, then I had to be an expert in it, you know? Yeah, that's very similar for me. And I was very thankful for shows <laughs> like Yo Gabba Gabba that were actually somewhat entertaining. And oh, I shouldn't even say somewhat. They were entertaining and very watchable and fun and obviously massive throwbacks for the parents, like seeing bands like the Aquabats and uh, who was the rapper who was on it with his, was it Bismarcky? Is marquee. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff that like we would be watching it. Oh my God, that's so-and-so. And that was actually entertaining. The kids have no idea. There is a great rite of passage as a, as a parent when you start finding that you have to 
bargain with the kid, like, no, don't watch that one. Not Bubble Guppies. Let's watch this one. You know, no more Blue's mm-hmm. Clues, because as a parent, Blue's Clues is mind-numbing. But I'm totally cool with another episode of, you know, whatever thing they're into now that, that you can follow along. My kids are all about Odd Squad right now. I don't know if your kids have discovered no, my that. Kids but have become really, really cool, and they are into um, mostly adult things now. So we binge watch shows as a family uh, over the course of sometimes months, and we have worked our way through Friends, Parks and Rec, The Office, oh, wow. Community. We are currently doing The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It's... Great to be able to watch shows that I like with them. But I will tell you (laughs) that on rewatch, you you often have those moments of like, did I realize that there was so much conversation about sex in Friends? (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A lot. (laughs) Yeah. um, We, my son loves Queen, like is ridiculous about Queen and has been for, for a few years. And it's just kind of ramped up and up and up. And with the movie coming out and everything, like it's, you know, commercials are out there and he's seeing a lot more of it. And it broke his heart when we told him, you're not going to go to the theater with us and see this movie, buddy. I'm sorry. It's not really for a six-year-old. And um, we just purchased the download of it. And my wife said she watched it with him today. and. And it took like maybe 45 minutes or 35 minutes because she was fast forwarding through almost everything and just getting to performance type stuff. But she said he was just, he didn't even sit down. He just stood and watched it with the biggest grin on his face the entire time. So yeah, we're, we're working our way there. I I am a queen fan and um, I brought my daughter to see it in the theater. She told me she was interested. And when, my son and wife were out of town for my sister-in-law's 40th birthday. I thought that would be a good time to take her. I am not convinced she understood everything. Mm-hmm. The language does not bother me. I have a standing rule in our house that when you're 18, you can choose to use whatever language you'd like. But bad words <laughs> yeah. are reserved for adults, and you don't have to repeat yeah. our mistakes. So, you know, <laughs> I try not to be too bad around them. But yeah, they they know they they know words. Yeah, and and you think back to and I don't know if it was the same way for you, but when I was eleven or and younger, uh, I was seeing a lot of these. And back then, I mean, there wasn't PG thirteen or anything like that. It was you were going straight from PG to R, and I was seeing a lot of R rated movies. And you know, I I remember watching Flash Dance on an airplane when I was, God, I don't know how old I was because I'm not sure what year that movie came out, but I was way too young for Flashdance and 80% of that movie was over my head. You know, you you don't take in all of these different nuances and the dialogue, you're probably just kind of dozing through it. But Allow me to suggest that you go back and check out Flashdance because that is not nuance. <laughs> that, that is right out there for you. I, I remember yeah. Flashdance. And, and the movie that, for some reason, the, the movie that kind of hits that on the head for me, there was a movie called Porky's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Like that existed solely. I was a big fan of Porky's yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah, the uh, hole in the wall and all of that. And, and still, and I've seen, you know, 
there are obviously things that you latch onto it as a not only as a kid but as a male kid to all of these movies you know i remember seeing uh bachelor party when i was a kid and all of these movies from the 80s that were you know fast times at ridgemont high and all of these things and you know obviously i remember the very famous scenes and the pool scene bb gates yeah and 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 now you hear those songs like i will play my spotify daily mix and one of them will play not that song but the one of for the uh dugout sex scene and um it's so funny cuz my my friend who i share an office with we will say there is no way that anybody who has seen this movie can hear this song and it doesn't bring that back immediately to you. And even as a kid, like, you know, those are the things, obviously they were the big things and the pizza in the classroom scene that you remember. But a lot of the other stuff just kind of goes over your head. Some of those things will just never be recreated because in an internet age, there isn't really a need for the category between PG 13 and R anymore. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, a little sad. That's something that as like a late Gen Xer, I, I'm allowed to mourn. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty healthy attitude toward, uh, well, uh, with my expectation about my kids and what kinds of exposure they'll have and what sort of pressure they'll be on them physically in, you know, a 2019 kind of world. And mm-hmm. uh, I kind of have this line, which is, I'm never going to be the guy who says, you know, let me polish off my guns for the kid who's coming for my daughter. I, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, totally. My daughter, I hope she has uh, relationships with a person who treats her right and respects her and uh, doesn't lay their hands on her. And I hope she has a very satisfying physical life. But I also kind of hope that starts at like somewhere between 21 and 25. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> certainly but I'm, I'm also a realist and you know i hope that uh that things unfold at the rate that she's comfortable with them so yeah i say that i say that on this side of that right 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 and it's funny being the father of a boy and a girl because you get to think about both sides of it the the values that you instill to both of them and how different those are. I remember when we were having kids and when we were having a girl, we were really excited and we wanted a girl. And before we had our son, we, we wanted another girl actually for our older daughter to have a sister. And I remember somebody saying, now that you've had a girl, you have to worry about all of the other penises that are out there in the world. And And when you have a boy, you just have to worry about one. That's right. It's a great line. I, (laughs) I consider myself really progressive about this stuff. And I think of myself as really open-minded and my daughter is lucky to have somebody who is never going to pretend that she is a possession that, that he gets to regulate. But the opposite side of that is that I can't help it. I do feel double standardy and I don't have I I don't have the same kind of hopes for her on the timeline that I do for my son. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I say that with a little bit of embarrassment, but also just complete honesty. That's just how it is. And I can uh, I I can set myself up to be an idealist, but 
I also live in a society that has shaped me. And that's just how it is. And you're kind of hoping that a lot of other parents out there are doing a good job as well, really. Like, that's that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, but all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. So, anyways. Uh, yeah, so, we're over an hour in. We haven't even gotten to one of the coolest kind of uh, dimensions here, which is... Uh, the Mockingbird Foundation. Yeah. So if I can just kind of rein this in, Fish.net was formed by fans uh, in the early 90s, not even in the age of HTTP, literally as a gopher website, which really kind of dates me, but a different protocol altogether from how we use web pages today and eventually evolved. Uh, There were some paper steps in there. And at some point it became obvious to young, hopeful attorneys that they were uh, collecting a pretty good amount of intellectual property. And so also kind of spurred on by the fact that the band had formed a charity called Waterwheel. And there were these uh, socially conscious groups popping up around fish, like the Funky Bitches, which was for supporting female fans, and the Fellowship for supporting uh, sober fans, they formed uh, a charity to uh, raise money for music education and to protect the intellectual property that was being disseminated via fish.net. And over time, that mission has really kind of settled into those two categories. One is that there's a very distinct and um, large team that maintains fish.net and all of the data about fish set lists and jams and uh, facts surrounding that and quite a bit of subjective opinion. And the other side is the granting arm. And that's gotten to be pretty sizable. In fact, we're approaching one and a half million dollars of money given out. And to this day, we've never had uh, a single employee. It's been a hundred percent volunteer and there's something like 98% plus pass through. So very, very little overhead compared to virtually every other charity mm-hmm. that I'm aware of. That's crazy. That's huge for all of the involvement that has to go into that. How much of that is volunteer is really cool. Yeah, it, it's it's not a little bit of work either. So 2009, uh, if I can kind of rewind in that story, I had just kind of rebuilt fish.net and the band had come back and now the site traffic was kind of skyrocketing and this discussion forum was, was blowing up and I was maintaining and writing everything a hundred percent by myself. And so, uh, investing a pretty significant amount of time and they asked me to join the board of the Mockingbird foundation. And I already am a big believer in, uh, music and arts education already something that's a, a big deal to me. So I was thrilled to join and be appointed as the director of technology. And soon after the vice president of, uh, well, vice president, comma, director of technology. And I ended up deciding that there were more things that I wanted to do with my time. I was getting more successful in my career and I felt like it was time to do more. So I um, joined the board of a repertory theater here uh, with a a much, much larger operation than the the Mockingbird Foundation, but 
still consistently music and arts education. And the reason I say is because eventually I got to the point that I said, the foundation has to have some goals that include things like outliving the first round of directors, the founders of the foundation. And we need some improved governance and we need some process that's going to work well, especially now that we have more money coming in. And one of the things I realized I had to do was step down as the director of technology and no longer be in charge of fish.net. It was a tough decision because there was nobody who was really in a position to uh, take that role. Wow. So I'm going to kind of speed through this next part, but I ended up finding some people who uh, wanted to participate and bringing them into the loop and working with them and training them on things and uh, granting them access slowly and eventually handing the reins over to um, an awesome guy whose name is Pete Skewscox, and he became the director of technology. And uh, shortly thereafter, so we're talking last year now, the president of the foundation, a guy named Marco Walsh, uh, decided to step aside. And I had three people contact me and say, I hope you're considering uh, being the president of the foundation. So dot, 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 I now am the president of the Mockingbird Foundation. Uh. And it is such an awesome, awesome mission that we support. And the group of people we have are awesome and they put in a ton of time. And uh, we have gotten good enough that not only are we taking in more money than ever, not only do we have more fans who see this as their charity, Mm -hmm. but um, even the band, uh, we administer a number of water wheel grants. We administer the Christie Anastasio Manning Memorial Fund, which was established uh, after Trey's sister passed away. And uh, yeah, all things are bright for the foundation for now and for the future. So it is really exciting to be a part of this group and have so much ability to affect what happens with the foundation. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's such a huge honor for you, I'm sure, like working your way up to that and to have people coming to you and saying you should be going for this and uh, the work that that they do, I mean, as as a parent and as somebody who's into music, like I know how not only big that is for a lot of communities, I'm sure, but how important that is for kids to have that opportunity that uh, may not have had it at all otherwise or may not have had it to that extent is so, so important. Yes, absolutely. 100% agree. And it is a huge honor. And I, I don't want to represent it just in terms of people approaching me and saying, you should do this. The part that's amazing to me is having the ability to have a say in some of these grants. Mm-hmm. So we have given grants that really stand out in my memory. There was a uh, a village in remote Alaska that wasn't really reachable except by helicopter or like by snow dog. Mm. And they had these kind of Athabascan fiddles that were like a a part of their culture, but they were losing the ability to play it and kids hadn't spent as much time and there really weren't people who could instruct them. And uh, one of our grants went toward funding not only the purchase of additional fiddles, but also sending instructors out there to teach not only the kids, but also 
some of the vil- village elders so that we could make sure that gets preserved. In rural Kentucky, there was this uh, like literally a, a center for juvenile delinquents, and they had done this pilot and shown that with music programs, they had really good success. And so we were able to bring in kind of old Kentucky bluegrass and allow these kids to have the exposure to sing and learn how to play some of it. And the program was a massive success. And so we have stories like this over and over again, the Joplin tornadoes tear through and destroy a school. And there's certainly no money for a music room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they're trying to like build bricks and we step in and say, Hey, once that building's done, we're going to put instruments in it. You know, I mean, those kinds of things have real tangible effects on so many kids' lives. And right. it's not like it's coming out of my pocket. I mean, people who, who contribute to the foundation have allowed us to be able to have that kind of effect on people as a community. It's mind-blowing to think that, that we've given out so much money that has come from this amazing fish community. Yeah, that's so cool. And and seems like something that will continue to have that growth as some of that community is continuing to mature and get older and have that forethought that 20 years ago, you know, is not that potential isn't there as much as it is now. So it's a perfect time for all of that to kind of start really taking off as it has been for the past, I don't know, five years or so. Yeah, you got it. Especially as the band's fan base continues to grow in the late nineties, you know, the, there wasn't as much ubiquitous internet. And so it wasn't quite, it didn't have the same reach, not necessarily in terms of fans, but in terms of mass infection as exists today. So with fish being back for you know roughly 10 years now, you not only have a generation who learned about fish in 2009, 2010, but now you have a new generation coming in 2019. And those are all fans that I think should know about the foundation. And uh, we, we, want, we want our organization to exist for them for the duration of their fish fandom and well beyond that. Mm-hmm. And that involves building, you know, infrastructure that can sustain. And that is a fun challenge for us to take on. Yeah, I'm sure. That's great. Well, I'm glad we were able to make sure that we touched on that. Um, I don't want to completely wrap up because I want to put you through kind of a lightning round. If you've got the time for it, Adam. Yeah, I've got Um, the time if you've got the inclination. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I didn't warn you about this, so um, I will, as needed, I'll edit out any long pauses. So because I I don't want to pay for the Jeopardy music and you okay. know, how that goes, <laughs> and you can pass on any of this. But if you had to pick your top five fish songs, what do you think they would be? Oh my god, uh, that is a really <laughs> difficult question because I think the answer changes on a regular basis. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Okay, so... um, So we'll say today. Yeah, so today's top five. So I'm going to throw a curveball in here. Uh, This is in no particular order, of course. Are you Um, allowed to say curveball yet? (laughs) You're you're right. That was probably... (laughs) 
That was probably in, in poor taste. <laughs> <laughs> we'll I'm say screwball. Throw, I was going to say screwball. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I'm going to start with Time Turns Elastic. Whoa. I'm going to put one, that one out there mostly because I think it's fun to take on the controversy here yeah. and say, uh, I think that song is a masterpiece and I don't think Fish ever really nailed it live. And I think that led people to jump on the bandwagon of it's a show killer, it's a set killer, mm-hmm. but it's it's a beautiful piece of music and uh, it's beautiful when it's uh, scored for an orchestra. Um, so today, that's going to be in my top five. Okay. Um, whew, okay. Next, I am going to say Ghost because I love the song and there are so many jams that uh, stand out that all came from ghost. I think it's one of my favorite vehicles for them to uh, jump off from when I'm seeing them live Mm -hmm. in that same vein. I got to go tweezer. Um, I feel like that's kind of a, a a generic answer that lots of people are going to give, but man, uh, nine times out of 10, if you say, what do you want the band to play next? I'm going to say tweezer because I think it's most likely I'll end up where I want to be. Um, and since you said time turns elastic, you could say just about anything now. Yeah, right. <laughs> nothing will be nothing will be surprising anymore. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to put split open and melt in there. Mm. I don't know that had I put any thought into it, that that would still be in the top there. But I love I love listening to that song live. I love that it's sometimes exploratory. Um, it's kind of a, an older classic. And I like that being in there. Um, I was going to give you like a joke answer for the next one. Oh, um, like Nellie Kane like, or something. I was going to say summer of 89 just to uh, really <laughs> just to make you regret saying time <laughs> turns elastic was a problem. Uh, but um, I think instead I'm going to put a uh, fee on the list. Mm. Um, it really isn't one of my favorite songs, but it is the song that really initially got me into fish. And I just think that's more important to talk about right now mm-hmm. than to uh, really carve down which is my which is my actual favorite. Yeah, I was really big into Rush at one point, and I found myself in a room with a kid who was really into Fish, and we I played La Via Strangiato by Rush. He played Fee, and I laughed at him and said, "All right, God, <laughs> are you telling me you think that band uh-huh. <laughs> compares to Rush? Did we even hear the same thing?" And then I just couldn't get that stupid song out of my head. And then I eventually went out and bought the album. And then I went out and bought the rest of them. Oh. And then I started collecting tapes. That's and awesome. So that was back in what, like nine ninety? No, oh no, that was ninety three. Oh, okay, I, I had heard some fish tapes that my uh, sister had somehow gotten her hands on in like hmm. ninety two or maybe early ninety three, but I don't remember anything about them i just remember that when i heard fee that was the turning point uh, and then i then i remember listening and oh david bowie that's a pretty cool song and you know yeah cool so there's my top five same question but now with umphreys oh god you are absolutely killing me so <laughs> umphreys is even harder for me because i really don't think i have favorite umphreys songs mm-hmm. but but i am going to give you five songs just because We'll say for today again. (laughs) Right. Okay. So the first thing that comes to mind is two by two. Mm, Um, Good. It's, it's got 
some crazy complicated instrumental parts inside of it. And there are some funny uh, stories about how to remember how to count those parts out. But as somebody who is not good at several instruments, I appreciate how complicated uh, something like that is to execute. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that one's got to be on my list. Next, I'm going to say Wappy Sprayberry, mm. pretty much for similar reasons that I would say Tweezer. I feel like that's a that's a great like edge of the diving board. Mm-hmm. I like I like the song, but I love when it goes in different directions. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think that's a big part of uh, yeah what I really like about it. I want to pick something a little more modern. I want to say cut the cable. Mm. And I'm going to choose that one because my kids love that song. Oh, cool. And because they really liked it, it it felt really good to me to have them connect with an Umphrey song. Mm-hmm. My daughter went through a phase when she was younger of really being into the song Cemetery Walk. Nice. But both of them really like cut the cable. And at some point I brought them to a show and they got to come sit on stage and play on the drums and everything. And when the band came out for sound check, my kids said, would you play cut the cable? And they played cut the cable at the sound check directly for my kids. So there's kind of a warm, warm memory there. Yeah. Again, I don't think I can call this a favorite song, but earlier today I was singing the song Miami Virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to say that one. Sorry, you didn't actually ask me to explain any of this. That's okay. <laughs> so the explanation, you, this is adding more meat to it. So we like the gristle. I'm really giving you a terrible lightning round. Uh, Miami <laughs> Virtue to me is really a great example of like just a standard Umphrey song. It's fun. It's got a, a good hook. 
and it's it's a great song that could open a set or could fall right in the middle. Then I'm going to add one more. I'm going to say the floor. Oh, good choice. And I'm going to say the floor because to me that is like quintessential Umphrey's riff right there. Mm-hmm. is like metal jam band that's probably right. not right more like you know heavier jam band and i think you need to have like some some kick-ass riff in there in order to like get the true umphreys out of it yeah so i like it tomorrow i'll regret those answers but uh that, that's what i'm feeling tonight you'll only have to uh hear about it every time somebody mentions this podcast so no biggie right so my last song selection here is uh mostly for convenience of the story that I promised you. Uh, and I'm going to say the song Kula. So uh, when I was in Europe uh, in 1998 in Copenhagen, I did not have a place to stay because obviously I had no plans. And I met a guy whose name was Chris Van Kula. And I stayed with him at some little house he had rented. And I didn't know him. And we hung out for a couple of days in Copenhagen. And that was that. Didn't hear from him again, didn't talk to him again until I was in New York and I was at the uh, Umphreys show at the Beacon in probably 2012, 13, 14, something like that. And Kevin Browning, again, manager of Umphreys McGee, introduces me to one of his best friends. And I said, I think I know you from somewhere. Mm. And we kind of batted this around a little bit. And uh, lo and behold, it was Chris Van Kula. No so, way. Uh, yeah, 20 plus years on, I uh, ran into uh, somebody from Europe 98, probably the first story I told you. So, uh, yeah, everything kind of wraps back around, I suppose. That's so crazy. Yeah. And he is, does that song take that title and everything from him or? Right. Yeah, that's the part I didn't, uh, I didn't connect there. So my understanding is that that song uh, is directly lifted from his name huh that's so cool yeah Okay, so this one might be quicker, and you can do like one or two, but your favorite covers 
by Fish. Oh, geez. My favorite covers by Fish. Do Trey songs count as covers? Sure. Yeah, you can count those. Okay. I don't think I'm actually going to choose a Trey song anyway. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I'm not going to do that, but I just wanted to see if you would think. Right. About. Just trying to establish the rules here. Yeah. So, boy, I think uh, off the top of my head, I can barely even think of a cover song that that would make it into my top. At different times, I've been very into uh, Fish Covering Life on Mars by David Bowie. Mm-hmm. I love when Fish does their one-offs. So like the Terrapin Station cover they did. And oh, gosh. That's, that summer of 98, they did yeah. like um, Rhinoceros by Smashing Pumpkins. And I know those aren't even like great versions of the songs, but it's just so fun to hear something random like that. Totally, um, yeah. So when I was at the Merryweather 98 show, Fish played Sabotage. And, you know, the nobody even knew what they were hearing for the first few seconds. Right. And then there, and then there was like this realization. And I remember <laughs> the energy like swishing across the crowd. And that, that is like probably one of my top 10 fish concert moments. Yeah. Um, was that, that like energy during, uh, Meriwether eight, eight ninety eight sabotage. Yeah. So I, I don't know how many I gave you there. That might've been two. Okay. Same question for Humphreys. Uh, Humphreys covers, Humphreys does a lot of one-time covers too, and they oftentimes stay a little truer to it. So I'm going to say I really like when they cover the police, when the world is running down, mm, make the best mm-hmm. of what's still around. Love that song. And I think that one suits Brendan's voice pretty well. Yeah. And then I really like a lot of their mashups. Mm-hmm. Um, so for you as a Queen fan, there was a Nemo Fat Bottom Girls um, oh yeah, I forgot about a that mashup. That was really good. Yeah, and of course, an, another mashup that I really enjoyed, even though it's kind of forgotten, is uh, Atlanta 2011. They did a mashup of uh, Paul McCartney 1984 and Terrence Trent Darby's "Wishing Well" and Humphrey's <laughs> own "Well Wishers." That was a great song, and and I wish that that had uh, survived beyond a single performance. Mm -hmm. So good. The, the addition of, uh, Terrence Trent Darby to their catalog. (laughs) And honestly, the Umphreys version is not nearly as cheesy as the actual Terrence Trent Darby version. So, uh, yeah, it it was, it was a brilliant way to kind of play with the names of the songs as well as the melodies. Yeah. Okay. So going outside of those two bands, could you do an Island albums list? Uh, Island albums. I, I I definitely could give you a list of lots of albums that I think are are great albums. So I'll just kind of go down the list, and you stop me <laughs> when I've brought enough. To, okay, uh, for this out. So my top two albums of all time uh, are always going to be Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody has ever made an album that's even come close to being the standalone works of art that those two are. So that's one and two um, unapologetically, but to go in a completely different direction, one of the, one of the albums that was a big deal for me in kind of forming my taste of music was angel dust by faith. No more, Mm. um, which came out in 1992. And and every song on that album is great in its own way. And Mike Patton has an absolutely um, astounding voice. Yeah. So that that's just 
sensational end to end. Because I'm reaching for uh, some genre hopping here, I uh, <laughs> please I really say like- Linda Ronstadt next. <laughs> nope, it's not going to be Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> okay. uh, but I'm going to say the uh, the album Third Stage by Boston. Oh, um, nice. Early on, they really tried to like make guitars do really cool things without you know what they called synthesizers, and the songs have great harmony and they're really melodic. And I really like a lot of those songs. I consider several of them to be kind of classic. Smashing Pumpkins. I I almost want to add Melancholy to the list also. Mm-hmm. But Melancholy is really one great album and one mediocre album mixed yeah. together. Yeah. They uh, blew it. Yeah, yeah. So close. But <laughs> I am I am gonna add Siamese Dream because oh, yeah. Siamese so Dream. Good. Yeah, those two albums are incredible next to each other because the production is so different. Uh, Siamese is so tight and perfect, mm-hmm. Butch Vig style, and uh, uh, Melancholy is just absolute emotion with no no uh, focus on perfection, and uh, that's Flood producing. Those are two mm-hmm. awesome albums. Yeah, I could do another fifteen or so, but for the, I'll respect the lightning round and, and okay, move to the next one. That's your five. Okay, yeah. so last question: If you could see any band that isn't playing live anymore, whether it's due to retirement or death or something like that, who would you want to see? Who? Um, so the only real band that I, I haven't seen live off of my favorite, uh, my favorite artists is the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I'm really not sure a, that that would be the best show to see. Mm-hmm. Since the Beatles never played live for the stuff that I would be most interested to see. I don't know that yeah. those are uh, things that can be realistically reproduced. I also feel like that's kind of a boring answer. So I'm going to go a different way and I'm going to say, I would like to see Robert Johnson. So oh. blues guitarist from, I want to say like the twenties and thirties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the old story about he made a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm to allow him to to play things that nobody had ever been able to play before and that he'd play with his back to the crowd so they couldn't see how his uh, fingers were uh, stretched across the frets. His his stuff is not, compared to modern music, so amazing as much as it is uh, groundbreaking for when it existed. So, right. yeah, he, he was pretty amazing, and I would love to have seen uh, a legend like that. That's a great call. And especially because like you can't even in this day and age, you can't just tap into that and scratch that itch in any way. Yeah, you're right. There's, there's nothing even remotely like that. And anybody who does exist has had the benefit of the next almost hundred years of, uh, people getting better and, and guitars getting, uh, more precise, you know, that just, that world doesn't exist anymore. So mm-hmm. it'd be cool to slide back and slip into the back of a bar and watch that. Yeah, I like that idea. Cool. Well, thus endeth the lightning round. Thank you for participating. Sure. <laughs> I liked all those answers. Again, thank you very much for for taking all of the time out um, of your busy life and your week night to tell all these stories and to be part of the podcast. I really appreciate it, Adam. Yeah, I I can't thank you enough. This was a lot of fun. I hope that was uh, interesting to somebody out there. 
And um, if, uh, if anybody wants to learn more about the Mockingbird Foundation, by all means, find us online at mbird.org. Yes. And also make sure that you go to it's Embird Foundation is the Twitter handle. And if you want to find Adam on Twitter, uh, his handle is Seth Adam one. And all of the other links are there in your uh, bio section there for all of the things that you work on. Yeah. Yep. You got it. I'm uh, I'm in a lot of places. And uh, most of them, you can find me pretty easily. I'm Seth Adam one pretty much everywhere. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. And uh, I hope that we maybe someday will be able to be in the crowd somewhere, either at a fish show or an Humphrey show and get to share a high five during some amazing jam. I'm hoping for that same thing. Appreciate (laughs) it. Cool. All right. Thanks, Adam. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, and that was my conversation with Adam Scheinberg. I hope that you guys do look him up on his Twitter, SethAdam1, and look at Embird Foundation as well, the Mockingbird Foundation. Look at all the things that Adam is involved with. And if you are somebody who donates to fantastic causes, I would welcome you to check out the Mockingbird Foundation, the work that they do. I said it probably multiple times while we were talking, but... It really is important work. And for those of you who are moms or dads listening, I think you'll agree with me how important music is to our kids and was to you potentially when you were learning some instrument as a child. And think about all of those things also that he was talking about, the different amazing communities and uh, groups of people that they have helped out with this money that is donated to their foundation. So do check out the Mockingbird Foundation. And you should also check out all of the other ways you can find Daddy Unscripted. We are on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, all as Daddy Unscripted. You can drop me a line and tell me how you felt about this episode at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. You can also send me other ideas for guests that you'd like to hear them tell their stories the way that Adam did at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. If you liked this episode or any other episodes, go on to iTunes, won't you, and leave a rating and a review. It really does help other people find this podcast and it helps us grow and helps us get these great guests. So I appreciate all of that from you guys as those pour in and all of those different notes that you guys give me. So keep that up. And as you are looking for other podcasts to listen to, you've already listened to all of the episodes you like from my podcast, and you're trying to fill your time, check out OsirisPod.com. And for those of you who have come here from the fish world or the Umphreys McGee world, I will just tell you, there are so many different cool podcasts that are unique in their own way that are involved in the Osiris podcast network, like Under the Scales with Tom Marshall, like the Helping Friendly podcast, like Broke Down podcast, 
like Beyond the Pond that talks about music and those bands that they somehow get to from the Fish universe, like Inside Out with Turner and Seth that talks with guests such as members of Umphreys McGee that they have had on and other things like the Sound podcast with Ira Haberman. There are the Female Centrics podcast, and there's also two awesome female-driven podcasts about music. There is the Um Freak Parents podcast that deals with families and parents in the Umphreys McGee universe, as well as the Female Centrics podcast, which deals with all things fish from a woman's point of view. So really cool podcast that you guys can all tap into. You, There's so many others, and I can't say enough good things. I once again want to thank Adam for all of his time here. I, of course, want to thank Humphreys McGee for all of their allowances to me to have their music as part of the podcast. That connection and that relationship between my podcast and their band is so important and so meaningful to me. So again, thank you so much to the band and their management for allowing that to be part of my podcast. So if you remember at the beginning of the episode, I greeted you in a language called Catalan. And now I will say goodbye to you in that language as well by saying fins des which means see you later. I'll see you guys later with the next episode. Thanks again for listening. 